Today we're starting a new series that's called Love Your Neighbour and this is going to take us pretty much all the way through uh, to Easter. So it's the next four to six weeks that we're going to be focusing on this together. And it flows directly out of what we've been talking about over the last month as we've kicked off our year where we've been talking about our three key statements that are really important to us, being a Jesus-centred spiritual family who are seeing lives change. We've talked about how Jesus is the centre of who we want to be. Jesus is the one who shows us what God is like. Jesus is the one who shows us how to live. We take all of our cues from Jesus and our aim is to create a sense of spiritual family, that that's the environment that we're trying to create as a church, a place where we can be real and genuine and authentic, a place where we are accepted and accepting of people who come from all over the place and a place where we can be encouraged and supported. And then last week we talked about how God wants us, as we centre on Jesus and as we are in this environment of being a spiritual family, to have our lives changed, to have transformation happen. And that God doesn't love us anymore when we do grow and change, but that that's baked into who we are. But we also said that God's not just passionate about that transformation happening in our lives, God's passionate about that happening in our lives collectively as a church family And God's passionate about that happening in the neighbourhoods around us. That God's very passionate about all of the people who live in all of the streets and all of the suburbs and all of the communities that are around us. And God wants to see their lives changed and transformed as well. And so that's what our focus is going to be over the next few weeks, is to talk about what it looks like for us to live out one of the most important parts of Jesus' teaching, which is summed up just as, love your neighbour. That's what Jesus said that we're called to do. So here's a bit of an overview of where we're heading. So today we're going to spend some time talking about the early church. So we're going to look at how it is that this group of people who started following Jesus ended up tipping the world upside down and the implications of that. Next week, as I said, Mark Reeson is going to come and share. And so he's going to unpack the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so the parable of the Good Samaritan is actually Jesus' answer to the question, who is my neighbour? Jesus gives a very strong answer to that, and so that's what's going to get explored next week. The week after that, we're going to talk about Mary and Martha, and the reality of the challenge for all of us living in a culture that is very, very full-on and very busy, and where we're very time poor, and to see what we can learn from the experience of Mary and Martha spending time with Jesus about what it means for us to be present with people. The week after that, we're going to talk about some of the barriers that often get in the way of us pursuing this idea of loving our neighbours and engaging with the people around us. And then March 29th is actually Neighbour Day. And so this is a national initiative that has nothing to do with the church. It's uh, started by an organisation called Relationships Australia, who have been doing this for years and years. And it's an opportunity to just say, you should get to know the people around you. And the recognition that when people know their neighbours, people's lives flourish and communities are safer and there's a whole bunch of really good stuff that comes out of that. So that's something that is a national initiative that is really, really good for us to be a part of. And it's one of these times where I'm a little bit challenged about why it is that another organisation needed to come up with something that probably should have been the mandate of us as the church all along. That there's this craving for people to connect with each other so much that these people outside the church said, do you know what we should do? We should encourage people to get to know their neighbours and spend time with each other. Sound familiar? So as we head towards Neighbour Day, we're going to talk a little bit more about what that looks like and some opportunities that might be there. And my hope is that we can share some stories about what we're doing as we go through this month as we get to March 29th. The week after that is then Palm Sunday, and then the weekend after that is Easter. 
And so my hope with this series is that it's also an opportunity for us as we have conversations with the people around us to be able to find out whether there might be anyone who's interested in coming along to our Easter services. And so we'll talk more about that as we get close to that and give you some resources to be able to invite people along if they're interested. But that's kind of where we're heading in the next little while. Now, I do want to name that some of what we're going to talk about in this series actually comes from a book called The Art of Neighbouring. So uh, this is a great book which you can get. There we go. Uh, If you're interested, so this is written by a couple of guys in the US who are church people. And so they wrote it with some of the stuff that we're talking about in mind. How do we get to know our neighbours? What does it look like to love our neighbours in practical ways? And so some of the things that we unpack will actually come directly from some of their content. So I want to name that as well. So this week, we're going to talk about how the early church had an impact How on earth is it that the early church managed to grow and uh, make such a difference and what was so different about them? So you have your teaching notes inside of Caring Connection and so if it's helpful to jot things down as we go through, I would encourage you to do that. So it is fascinating to think about the expansion of the early church and to go right back to the very beginning, that when Jesus was about 30 years old, He started his public ministry, and so he went around and he recruited some people to come and follow him as his disciples. And we know that these were not the cream of the crop, the people that Jesus picked. Far from it. They were people who were uneducated. They were people who were untrained. They were people who were very much on the fringes and the margins of society. And it always blows my mind that this was Jesus' plan A. Now, we know that Jesus spent a lot of time praying before he chose his disciples, and yet these are the ones that he picked. You would think that Jesus would go to the people who were powerful or the people who were popular or the people who had it all together, and yet Jesus goes to these people who really don't have it all together at all. And as the next three years plays out, as they spend time together, we recognise that that's very, very true, that they really don't have a clue what's going on a lot of the time, and that Jesus tells them things and tries to help them understand why he's come and what this whole kingdom life is all about, and a lot of the times they miss it, and they don't know what's really going on. At the end of Jesus' life, we then know that they all basically abandoned him. So they all walked away from him and said, no, this is all getting too hard, it's too scary, so we're out, and Jesus is left basically, to die on the cross on his own. But what's fascinating is that Jesus then comes back to life, and then we read this fascinating passage at the end of Matthew where we read about the Great Commission, which we've talked about, is our mandate as a church to go and make disciples. But the verse before the Great Commission says that the disciples were gathered together on a mountain with Jesus. And some of them worshipped Jesus and they recognised who Jesus was and they acknowledged who he was, but some of them doubted. This is a verse that's in the Bible. It's shocking. It's one of the times when I'm like, if you were going to write a book that was intentionally trying to convince people of something, you wouldn't include a line like that. To say some of the people who'd been with Jesus all this time, some of the people who'd spent the most time with Jesus, had seen him die, had seen him come back to life, had spent time with him in bodily form, were like, eh, Still not sure, I don't know, not really sure what's going on with this old Jesus thing. This is the group of people that begin the church. It's staggering when you think about it. It's mind-blowing to recognise that's the reality. How on earth did this group of people end up doing something that tipped the world upside down? And how on earth are we here 2,000 years later in that long line of the church because of them? That's staggering when you stop and actually think about it. 
So in the early church, there was 12 disciples, and then Judas dies, and then he's replaced. But we also know there's the 70 or the 72 who Jesus spent an extended amount of time with and gave some instructions to and sent them out and helped them to understand a little bit more about what it meant to follow him. And we know that there were some crowds who followed Jesus around as well. But most people would say that uh, as we get to the start of the book of Acts, that it probably wasn't a huge number of people, maybe a few hundred at the most, but anywhere between 12 to 150, 200, 300 people gathered together as the book of Acts starts. Now, the book of Acts is actually the second part of a two-part story. So Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are the four biographies that tell us about Jesus' life. And Luke, who oddly enough wrote the book of Matthew, no, Luke, that was a joke. Come, stay with me. <laughs> Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. And he deliberately wrote those as one that flows into the other. So the book of Luke takes us through to Jesus' resurrection. And then Acts picks that up at the beginning of the early church. And so at the beginning of the book of Acts, we have the disciples who see Jesus go back up to heaven and then are gathered together in a room. And you can imagine how they must have been feeling when that was going on. They're in this room, they've seen all the persecution that's been going on with Jesus, and far from Jesus coming back to life then fixing all of that, in actual fact it escalated it. And so the religious leaders of the day and the Romans were not happy at all about this group of people who were trying to say that this man came back from the dead. They're like, that's not okay, we're not happy with what you're talking about. And so the persecution was actually continuing for them. And so they're gathered together, and you can imagine that there's a huge sense of fear a huge sense of what are we supposed to do next. And so they're spending time praying and saying, God, where are you leading us? What's next for us? Out of that, the Holy Spirit comes on them in a really powerful way. The presence of God enters into them in a really significant way. And they discover, a whole bunch of them, that they can speak in other languages. Now, again, these are uneducated people who've never been trained before who can suddenly speak all of these languages and they spill out onto the streets and all these people who just happen to be in Jerusalem at the right time hear people speaking in their native language about this guy, Jesus. And it blows everyone's minds. And then Peter, this is the same Peter who we see all the way through his time with Jesus, regularly sticking his foot firmly inside of his mouth, making lots and lots of mistakes, getting it all wrong, and ultimately deserting Jesus and saying, I don't even know him. The guy who was probably Jesus' closest friend, he turns his back on him. That same Peter is the guy who stands up in front of a huge crowd of people and speaks boldly and courageously about Jesus and says, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has come to do. And so we know in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, that 3,000 people made a decision right there to say, we are in. We want to be a part of this thing called the church. We want to follow Jesus. So again, don't miss that. Because we've heard that story before and so sometimes we can just gloss over it. Yeah, yeah, 3,000 people believed. But just stop and think about that for a minute. Imagine if we stepped out onto the street after our service today and suddenly some of us could speak in other languages and then all of a sudden someone, not me, someone else, got up and said this amazing big message, helping people to understand who Jesus is. And there's this huge crowd around and 3,000 people decided that they wanted to follow Jesus at lunchtime today. Imagine what that would be like. It's crazy. 
So a little bit further on, in Acts chapter 4, we read that there were 5,000 men who were a part of the church. Now, this is not because only men were allowed to be a part of the church. It's just one of the ways that they talked about numbers. We know with the feeding of the 5,000, we often think that's 5,000 people, but actually that's also 5,000 men. So 5,000 people, uh, men, were a part of the church, which means women and children as well. There's probably 10,000-ish who were a part of the church once we get into Acts chapter 4. We then know, and you've got the references uh, on your teaching notes, so you can look them up during the week, but in Acts chapter 5, 6, 9, and 11, we read about more people who are also joining the church. The people continued to join the church. And so by the end of the first century, we don't know exactly how many people were around, but it would have been at least 10,000 and could have been 15,000 or 20,000 people. So again, don't miss that. In the course of about 70 years, the church grew from 12, 70, 100, 200 people to 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people. That alone would be staggering enough for us. But another 100 years later, most estimates would be that by AD 200, there were probably 200,000 people who were a part of the church. And then by AD 250, another 50 years later, probably a million people who were a part of the church. By AD 300, there were probably 6 million people, which was 10% of the Roman Empire. Just think about that for a moment. The whole Roman Empire, 10% of it were people who would say, yes, I'm following Jesus. And by AD 350, between 16 and 33 million people, different people have different estimates, were following Jesus. That could have been up to or just slightly more than half of the whole Roman Empire had made a decision that they wanted to follow Jesus and were gathering together in this thing called the church. (laughs) That's staggering. More people than there are in Australia were following Jesus. So how did that happen? How on earth did this group of people make this happen? Regardless of what the exact numbers are, because we don't know exactly how many people were there, but whether it's exactly that or it's more or it's less, it doesn't really matter. It's a lot, regardless of exactly what the numbers are. How did it happen? Was it because they had amazingly well-trained leaders in place? No. We know that's not the answer because, as we said, these were untrained, uneducated people who didn't really have a clue, fishermen, tax collectors, people who were on the fringes of society, outcasts, people who most people wouldn't even give a second look to if they passed them in the street. Was it because they ran these amazing outreach events or they had incredible services where they gathered together and people got swept up in what was going on? No. We actually know that most of the time the church needed to meet in secret because of the persecution that was happening. Part of the reason that the church spread as quickly as it did is they all had to leave Jerusalem because the persecution was so intense. So they weren't gathering in public spaces, holding these big outreach events to say, come and meet Jesus. We know that they gathered in people's homes and spent time together. We'll talk more about that in a sec. Was it because they had really fancy buildings that people walked past and said, wow, Something really incredible going on there. We should go in and have a look. No. Again, we know that they spent time gathering in the temple because that had been their practice. But the majority of what happened in the early church happened in people's homes. There wasn't anywhere central that you could go past and say, oh, wow, that's a big group of people gathering. It was this massive network that was spread out in homes right across cities. So, what was it then? I want to reread these snapshots 
of the early church. And I'm going to read from the message translation because I think that it helps them to come alive a little bit more. So if it's helpful for you, you might want to close your eyes and uh, try and picture exactly what was going on and just think about what would have been so appealing about what was happening in the life of the early church. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal and the prayers. Everyone was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles. And all the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pulled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home. Every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw. Every day their number grew as God added those who were saved. And then from Acts chapter 4, the whole congregation of believers was united as one, one heart, one mind. They didn't even claim ownership of their own possessions. No one said, that's mine, you can't have it. They shared everything. The apostles gave powerful witness to the resurrection of the master Jesus and grace was on all of them. And so it turned out that not a person among them was needy. Those who owned fields or houses sold them and brought the price of the sale to the apostles and made an offering of it. The apostles then distributed it according to each person's need. So what jumps out to you as you think about the images, these snapshots of what the early church was like? These are the things that we read them doing together, gathering around Jesus' teaching. And it's good for us to remember what that would have been like. They didn't have Bibles back then. So it wasn't everyone, okay, open your Bibles and turn to this page. They didn't have books like that. It would have been them gathering together. And I can imagine someone saying, do you remember that time when Jesus told that parable? Do you remember that time when Jesus healed that person? Do you remember that time when Jesus taught us in such an upside down way about what it meant to be a part of God's life? Do you remember the things that Jesus encouraged us to do? And then they would have spent time unpacking that together and saying, well, what does that mean? What does that look like for us today to put that into practice? How can we go and do the things that Jesus asked us to do? So they gathered together around Jesus' teaching. They spent time praying together. You can imagine them spending this time just saying, God, what are you up to? Help us to understand more about what we're supposed to be doing. Help us to understand more about what Jesus has done for us. And then praying for the needs of the community around them, saying, what's going on? How do we pray for the people who are sick and hurting and lonely? We know that they spend a lot of time eating together and sharing life together. Such a crucial part of what the church has always been about, spending time eating together. It's why it's so great that we're going to eat together today. It's this opportunity to just share life, to talk about what's going on, talk about what's happening in our lives, what's going on in the people that we know what we're learning, what we're discovering, to be able to encourage each other, to be able to support each other. This huge sense of generosity, constantly looking out and saying, how do we help the people around us? How do we make sure that there aren't people who are in need? How do we resource what needs to be done? It's this huge sense of joy that comes from the recognition of the freedom that they had from religion, knowing that they didn't anymore have to follow all of these laws and feel weighed down by all this stuff they had to do. But recognising because of Jesus' death and resurrection, they were set free. So they were joyful about that. This amazing sense of freedom that spilled out in their whole attitude, in the way that they engaged with the people around them. 
Now, it's true that there were some miracles that happened as a part of that, but we can't say that's the main reason that the church grew or that it continued to grow because most of those times where someone was healed or something miraculous happened, it was just one person or just a couple of people. There was a small group around. And if it was just about these amazing miraculous signs that were happening, then the church wouldn't have grown exponentially. So what exactly was going on? We recognise that it was just an ordinary group of people who were focusing on what Jesus taught and saying, how do we live this out in a real and genuine way? And in particular, how do we love the people around us the way that we know that Jesus loves them? How do we live as a family of people who are living out what it means to follow Jesus together? And most of the time, when the church has grown through the last 2,000 years, that's been the same things that have been going on. Groups of people gathering around Jesus' teaching, taking it seriously, going back to the essence and saying, what did Jesus actually teach us? What does it mean to actually live that out? In reality, journeying together as spiritual family, released with a joyful freedom because they understand what it is that Jesus has done and then looking at how they can serve and be generous to the people around them. When that has happened, generally the church has grown. Now, it's true that there are times when the church has grown because of force or because people have been coerced into being a part of the church or because of cultural norms, but that never makes a long-lasting difference. And generally, on the other side of that is a lot of damage and a lot of people walking away from the church because they realise that's not what this was supposed to be about at all. So it's a huge question for us to wrestle with as we head into the rest of this series. To say, do we still believe that Jesus has something to offer? Do we still believe that Jesus can change people's lives? Do we still believe that Jesus' teaching has something that's radical and different about it? That can impact the communities that we're a part of? If so, probably more than it's been in a long time in Australia and maybe more than it's ever been in Australia It's not going to be that people discover that because of fancy buildings or because of great programs or because of great leadership. Now, all those things are really important. We are so, so fortunate to have this amazing facility that we've got. We intentionally invest in the programs that we do to do them to the best of our ability so that the times that we have together are really meaningful. We have a great team of people who provide leadership as a part of our church family. Those things are really important, but they're actually important mainly to help people stick. People discovering Jesus for the first time doesn't normally happen anymore because of those things. It normally happens because someone's willing to say, Jesus makes a difference in my life and here's why. And I want to show you what the love of Jesus looks like so that you can have an encounter with him and discover what he's all about. So that's really the challenge for us that we're going to unpack more as we go into this series, to be able to say who are our neighbours and what does it mean for us to love them. So that's the question that I want to encourage you to reflect on as we head into this week to prepare yourself for the rest of where we're going. Who is my neighbour and what does it mean for me to love them? And when we talk about neighbours, we're partly talking about the people who live around us geographically, so the people who are on our street, people who live next door to us, across the road from us, the people who live in our building, the people who live where we live. That's part of what we're talking about. But we're also talking about the people we have regular connections with, our friends, 
our extended families, the people that we work with, the people that we see on a regular basis. Those people are also our neighbours. So who are the people that God's put in my life that are my neighbours? And what does it mean for me to love them the way that Jesus wants me to love them? Here's a couple of practical things for you. The first one is to pray. To take some time just to say, God, who are the people that you've put in my life? Take some time every day this week to just say, God, who is around me? Do I know my neighbours? Do I know the connections that I've got? Do I know their names? Do I know their stories? And if not, then I pray, God, that you would give me some opportunities to be able to do that. Or I randomly bump into them in the street. Or I randomly get into a conversation with them. An opportunity just to get to know the people that are in my life. The second thing that I want to encourage you to do is to prepare. And uh, I'm going to be very honest here. I completely forgot to print out the thing that I was going to hand out to you right now. So (laughs) I'm going to have that available for you afterwards. It's a thing called a block map. And it's very, very simple. It is basically just a piece of paper that has you and your house in the centre of it and then a bunch of squares around it. And my encouragement to you is to say, do I know the people around me? And who do I know? I can start putting their names and a little bit about them in it. So it could be that you write the person across the street, or it could be number nine, or it could be (laughs) that neighbour that I see every now and again. But our goal is to say, how well do I know the people around me? What are the relationships that I've got? And again, what does it look like for me to step forward in that? And then the third thing is to then plan. So do that block map exercise at some point this week. Just jot down some names and take some time to think about through this month, what would it look like to just spend some time with one or two or three or four of those people? And that can be as simple as just inviting someone over for a coffee or it could be inviting people over for a meal all the way up to having a street party where you get all of the neighbours together and spend some time together. Particularly as we head towards March 29th, Neighbour Day, there's going to be a whole bunch of those events happening all around us. And I would love it if we're initiating a bunch of those with the people that we live near. So take some time to plan and to prepare around that. Now I want to tell you a quick story before we wrap up about what happened for us last week. So I've been thinking about this series for a while. We generally do our planning for our services about three months at a time. So back in November, I was planning that this is what we're going to talk about in March. And one of the things that we've been talking about as a family is how we can continue to get to know some of our neighbours. So I've had this on my radar and been thinking, okay, March 29th, that'll be a good opportunity for us to do something. We live on a corner block, and so we've been thinking about this idea of just inviting people, bring some chairs and blankets, we can sit out on the grass, wheel the barbecue out onto the front porch, and just spend some time together. Now, we've been talking about this probably for longer than we should have, and we should have actually done something about it by now, but we were getting there. And then all of a sudden, about three or four weeks ago, we get this invitation from our neighbour saying, we would really love to have you over with a bunch of other neighbours to get to know you. So Anna and Warwick, who live next door to us, this beautiful couple who are not involved in the church in any way, don't know any of this stuff, send this thing. And so six of us all get together last Sunday afternoon at 2.30 at Anna and Warwick's place. And Anna cooked a bit of afternoon tea, but we could have just had some chips and it would have been fine. The conversation was amazing. Now, some of us knew some of the other neighbours, but none of us knew all of them. Now we do. We know every neighbour's name and we know a little bit of their story. We end up leaving at six o'clock. 
which is a lot longer than we'd expected we would be there for, but it was great. We spent the whole afternoon just sitting and chatting together. People desperately crave this. Everyone was thrilled to be invited to it. And I have a high expectation that when we throw our thing in a few weeks' time, that they'll all be excited about coming along to that as well. This is not something that's strange and weird and that our neighbours are going to freak out and say, oh, you weird Christians. This is something that people desperately want. And as people who want to love the people around us, it should be something that we're excited to be initiating with the people around us. So as we wrap up, I want to say one thing very clearly. Please don't do any of this because you feel like you have to. Please don't do any of it out of obligation whatsoever. Because as much as the people around us want this, they also know when people aren't doing it for genuine reasons. And they also know when we're just doing stuff because we feel like we have to. My hope and my prayer is that we do this because we want to. Because we take the time to sit with Jesus and say, help me love the people around me the way that you do. Help me see the people around me the way that you do. And if we don't feel like doing it, if we don't want to do it, take some time to work out why that is. For some of us, it may be because we have really awful, grumpy neighbours. And that's totally fair enough. So if that's the case, it's okay, you're off the hook. For some of us, it may be that we're just at that stage of life where we can't do this anymore. That's okay as well. Please take the time and pray for the rest of us. So it's not something you have to do, but I hope that it's something that we want to do. My challenge in saying, take some time to reflect, is that my suspicion is that for most of us, the reason why we hesitate to do this is because we feel inadequate, because we feel incapable, because we wonder about what people are going to say to us. What if they say no? What if they ask us a question? We don't know the answer. And I want to let you in on a little secret. We all feel that way. Even me. That's part of why it's taken us so long to plan this corner party. (laughs) Because we all wrestle with that reality. That's why it's good for us to reflect on the early church. So these weren't people who were amazing and incredible and super trained and had it all together. They were ordinary people who had spent time with Jesus. Because of that, they just reached out to the people around them in a very natural way. And out of that, people's lives were changed. It's not about having an agenda. It's not about having all of the answers. It's just about saying, I love the people around me because I know Jesus does. And I want to show them how I can serve them. I want to encourage them. I want to support them. I want to be with them and then see what conversations come up organically as we spend time getting to know each other, getting to know each other's stories. So I'm going to pray that as we head into the rest of this week, and into this month, that God can just open our eyes to the amazing opportunities that are all around us and the opportunity for us to love our neighbours. Let's pray. God, we thank you that throughout the Bible, what we don't see is a group of people who are amazingly competent, amazingly trained, who have it all together, who never make any mistakes. But throughout the Bible, time after time after time, we see ordinary, everyday people who have lots of baggage, have lots of challenges in their lives, but they spend time with you and they allow you to use them in the spaces where they are and out of that, amazing things can happen. We thank you for this incredible group of women and men that were the early church 
These people who just had been wrapped up in recognising Jesus, what you had done for them and the implications of that. And so spent time learning together, having a sense of joy as they shared together, eating together, growing together, and then ultimately looking for opportunities to be able to serve the people around them and to be able to make a difference in their lives. We thank you that we stand here because of what they began And we pray that as we move through this next month, that you would challenge us about what it means to have a heart for the people around us the way that you do. To recognise that we don't have to have all the answers, we don't have to have it all together. We simply need to be people who are willing to cross the road, to talk to the person next to us, to talk to the person at work, to be able to say, how are you? Tell me a bit about yourself. To be able to get to know them and in doing so to allow our genuine passion for you the difference that you're making in our life to come out in natural, organic ways. So we ask that you would go ahead of us as we move into this week and into this series, that your Holy Spirit would do some things through this next month that does nothing short of blowing our minds, that we end up finding ourselves in conversations that can only have been created by you. We'd find ourselves in situations and conversations where it's so obvious that you're at work in someone's life and where you just give us the privilege of being able to do what it is that you call us to do. I ask that you would take away the fear that we so often have of overstepping, of being offensive to people. Help us to be people who have a quiet confidence in who you are, in a quiet confidence in knowing what you have done for us and a willingness to share that with people around us who we know are so desperate to be able to find some answers to what life is all about. So we ask that you would take us and you would lead us in the days and weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.